three, two, one. All right, here we go. Welcome back to another UX Rant podcast. My name is Blake. I'm a UX designer located in San Diego. And if you've never been to this podcast before, this is just me hanging out on a Friday after a long week of design and meeting with clients, doing all that kind of good stuff that we do. And this is just to enjoy myself, talk a little bit about what's been going on in UX this week, whether it's in research, design, or in my case, front-end development, because I like to do a lot of front-end. But anyway, let's kick this thing off with some rant topics. So one big thing that I'm having a problem with with a lot of different people, because I like to curate content for different organizations. I'm the marketing director for an organization called User Experience Professionals in LA. So I help them out with just basic marketing campaigns, getting other people's information out there, advertising our meetups. But one of my biggest jobs is to keep our social media active, right? So I troll the internet for different, based off of whatever newsletters I'm reading, and curate some articles that I think are good, share a lot of useful things for both junior UX designers or people that have been been in their field a little bit longer. But one thing that drives me absolutely up the wall is the fact that some people don't like to put their social media handles out where they're easy to find. They're either trying to direct me to their website or if they have like a Twitter handle that I want to use for loading into Hootsuite, they don't put it out on Medium or whatever place I found the article from. Same thing with Facebook and same thing with LinkedIn. Guys, like people want to share your stuff and you're you're writing on, on the internet already. Why not like attach it to your profile that you're using? I don't know. It's it's just it's a strange thing for me because it's just like you want to get as much exposure as you can, right? So throw out your handles let everybody know where you're at where they can come find you interact with you and share more thoughts about the things that you're even putting out on the internet so i don't know we'll we'll end that one and here's the second one for the week so this is a public service announcement if your web page or your web app is not responsive i want you to pause this podcast after i say this next bit and type a little email to me at Blake at don'tpanicux.com. That's Blake at don'tpanicux.com. No, this is not an ad. It's just a serious call for I am more than happy to help figure out how to make your website responsive for you or work with you or find somebody who can work with you or get you into a CMS like WordPress or use a service like Squarespace. It's just, it is 2018. There are so many awesome developers out there, awesome designers that work with small businesses or want to work with small businesses. There's so many freelancers all over the place. Like, let us help you. That's what we're here for. I'm passionate about making the web more accessible, and that starts with responsive design. So whether it's media queries or CSS grid or using a Flexbox or getting on Squarespace, whatever it is, you let me know, and I'll be happy to help you. Anyway, so I'm going to plug an event that's here that's going to be local to me in San Diego this week. Sorry for anybody listening that's not in California. I basically go to events in California only because uh, I live here. But that might change. Who knows? Maybe I'll try and do some worldwide stuff. I know I'm going to go to HFES this year in Philadelphia, so that'll be awesome. But anyway, so next week on Monday, I think it's the 12th at 6.30, actually MailChimp is putting on a free workshop. And this one's all about branding and Facebook ads, which a lot of people might be listening to this and be like, I thought this was a UX podcast. It is. The, you've, I harp on this all the time with people. Is User experience is not just about your web app. It's not just about your application or even your physical product or walking into your store. It's about peop- how people experience your brand in totality. Now, this week on... Sorry, I always get the hiccups when I'm doing this. 
But this week on one of my YouTube shows that I do that's called Five Minutes of UX Questions, uh, which always is more than five minutes. But anyhow, so I was talking about the difference between user experience and customer experience. And there's a lot of people that make the differentiation. And I totally agree that there may be a need for the the difference between the two as basically the the gist being customer experience is like a person's experience with the entire brand like almost from onboarding to sales to uh, you know actually using your product to talking with your customer service like it's the whole gamut of things whereas ux is much more localized to a specific product so how do people enjoy their experience with like your app your phone inside your store whatever i like to group them all into one and social media is a big aspect of that especially in business in 2018 but it has been for a while whether it's like youtube facebook instagram all that stuff like how you design the content and target your audience with it and the message you're trying to show and the ways you can do it whether it's through video text whatever medium is best for you i'm always trying to learn more about that as a user experience professional and this is so back to my original thing so monday night mailchimp is putting on a free workshop at a place called moniker in i think it's old town in san diego it's awesome sick little little spot next to it i think it's either next to or has a coffee shop attached to it it's like a co-working space great space great people so if you're there say hi um more than happy to shake hands or bump fists or whatever but again i i can't stress more more than anything like Get get on your Gary V stuff and start trying to get on social media or understand how it can benefit your business and how you as a UX person can help people design their content. Because uh, again, we're trying to, you know, we're you can use your same skill set of understanding users, having empathy, and then delivering products to multiple facets of a company. And I think that's what makes designers so versatile and so useful. But anyway, all right, so that's enough of that. So let's get into the f- first design topic of the week. I think I shouted this guy out either on one of my five minutes of five UX questions on YouTube or here on the podcast, maybe both. But I want to shout out again this guy named Dan Petty. It's at D-A-N-N-P-E-T-T-Y. So he has put out this challenge. I think it's I think I'm a little late to the party on this, but he put out a challenge called hashtag spaced in all capital letters challenge. So hashtag space challenge. And it ends on February twelfth. And I love the idea of putting out design challenges in the community that, you know, let you showcase your design process, your work, and your ability to understand feedback and take critiques and then refine from there. But this is a, the basic premises that Dan put out a YouTube video. So again, at Dan with two N's, Petty, uh, and you can find him on YouTube and just type in spaced challenge basic premise he's acting as your client with a creative brief and he needs three things from you a logo an app and a homepage for an outer space travel company called spaced i mean this guy is he is the elon musk of design i mean come on this is this is just such a fun thing and i've seen like some of the work that's been done on twitter and it looks amazing um and then he even like put out a first round of critiques halfway through like giving people feedback on some of the stuff that they had done on their logo designs, things he wanted and didn't, didn't want. So I encourage you to get involved because it's a good way to test your skills. It's a good way to like kind of just interact with a lot of different people across social media, but also you could win a free MacBook pro. So again, this is not an ad. I don't know, Dan, I don't, I'm not affiliated with him. I just think this is an awesome thing. I would love to do 
these through YouTube or whatever to do design challenges. And I'll be filming mine all weekend. And I really encourage you to, to, to hop on the design challenge and start filming your process. It, it's good for your portfolio. It'll have something you can cut up and put on social media, just all sorts of good stuff. All right, so let's let's jump into a, a little bit of a heavier topic <laughs> for the design section. So something I've really struggled with as a UX designer is really talking about UX strategy. And the biggest part for me was when I would get into a business as a freelancer or even when I was working full-time for startups or different larger companies, it was I always felt like I was missing something. And this particular article that came out um, from Envision this week is all about UX strategy, and it's more of a little bit of a guide, right? So it's it gives you a template of so, of like about eleven steps you can go through on basically a PDF that gives you an idea of how you should get started um, and walk through the process. So it's 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 probably a lot of things you've heard before, right? So it's it's defining the problem, um, what problem are you solving, who you're solving it for, what are the outcomes going to be from you solving this problem, what are the challenges and risks involved in you trying to solve it, is there like a, a challenge budget-wise or timeline-wise, or do you not have development resources at the moment? And then also trying to get into more of like, okay, what makes this different from products we already have and solutions we already have, as well as, you know, things like how, how is this different from what other competitors are doing? Um, also breaking down, kind of getting into what am I going to measure to make sure that this is having the impact that I want it to have, um, which is another thing that I am just a big advocate of. I think everything in the world of user experience, whether it's research, design, and development, is a lot easier if you know what you need to be measuring, um, like especially if what you're measuring comes before you actually meet with users, then you've got an idea of maybe where some of the gaps are, or you've even started measuring a lot of different things about your website, let's say, and you're realizing like, I can't understand why they're not getting all the way through the checkout process. Like there's this giant drop off rate and people checking out of my website. Well, my analytics and measurements metrics will tell you that maybe you need to bring users in and watch them actually use the product, stuff like that. But what the article really harps on, and I've seen this a lot across different uh, social media outlets for UX and stuff like that, like a UX collective and all those guys. Um, but the biggest thing that I think that I lacked as a designer at first was under really taking the time to not just jump into figuring out like how to solve a problem or the problem that whoever was my product manager or the guy overseeing me or the gal that was running the team I was jump I was always trying to jump right into let's solve the problem with like something some change some feature change some different workflow um let's get users in here let's do some research without doing enough research in my new environment in my own company and this is something I've really had to grab a hold of working for people in freelance because you're only there for a short amount of time you don't have as much um, you know, bandwidth to get acclimated, especially if you're working, like if you're working remotely. So you have to get to know the business really quick. And, and I think a big part of that is when you get into a job, like really taking the time to understand what are the company's goals and mission, like in the grand sense. I mean, because that might not help help you from day to day, but that's going to be useful over time. 
But the biggest thing really is whatever product you're working on, like what what is the company's goals for it? And if you're like doing a launch, you're adding a feature, what behaviors are they, do they want to see from users or do they want to change from people that are using their product? Um, I think a lot of times we'll just kind of tackle it from only the user perspective where you've got to also weave in a little bit of what's going on in the company. Like what are what are their goals? How do we meet them plus satisfy our user base? It's, a, it's just a delicate balance, and um, this article is really more focused on kind of defining the problem and doing some of that user research and then risk analysis. A lot of what's talked about in kind of the Lean UX canvas and the UX strategy blueprint, um, but more actionable steps uh, for your day-to-day. But I think it's just really important that when it, whatever kind of facet of UX you're in, whether you're a freelancer or you're a full-timer, or you've just, especially if you just started a new job, just take the time to really get to know the company and the people you're working with and the different stakeholders, the different players, because I, th- I think ultimately that's going to help you move your product along in a way that's both successful for your user base, but also for your company in terms of product, product management goals and that kind of stuff. Um, all right. So this was on Free Code Academy, and it blew my absolute mind this week. So there's this 16-year-old who has been not only attending some MIT courses, but has been building and designing mobile apps and gotten into design around 13, and is absolutely killing it. Now, what I'm getting at that she's killing it in is the process. Like, the process is so clean, so refined for only being 16. I mean, I don't know about anybody else listening, but I was doing much more nefarious things than, you know, trying to build web apps or designing anything at 16. I mean, I was much more concerned with trying to figure out how to get from A to B or get to the next show. But anyway, so to to up the ante on this... I'm going to walk through kind of the process and some of the tools that she used because some of the stuff I hadn't heard of and it was awesome and sick and it's going in my workflow. Uh, But anyway, so just to up the ante even one more time though, the process that she followed was to build a cryptocurrency exchange rate app. So I'm going to let that simmer, just let it simmer a little bit. So I'll reiterate that it was for, she designed a Bitcoin conversion rate app or cryptocurrency. I don't think it, I think it has like all of the different types of cryptocurrency that are currently popular. But anyway, again, I was definitely not paying attention to what was going on in technology at this young of an age. So this just is so awesome. So take notes because this is a masterclass from a 16 year old. So step one, making basic user flow diagrams for each screen to map the logical flow of your app. So this is this is traditionally done. I think a lot of people do this, or I've definitely done it in all my jobs, because um, I I, th- I think sometimes I get carried away with like drawing stuff. So it's better to just start off simple. And this is just box arrow diagrams, right? So boxes like the basic screen, maybe some decision points in a triangle or in a uh, in a diamond, and then links between them, and how just kind of getting the general flow of how people are going to use the app, right? Super simple, Not, nothing too crazy, but still awesome because I love I love doing workflow diagrams because I, I think that helps me narrow down where in the app I need to kind of focus on how much information's on the page and and I kind of like to use it to do both information architecture type activities which we'll get into a little bit later in the show but also just getting basic user workflow stuff down. So then typical step making some paper paper sketches using UI stencils. Honestly, if you know the 
if it, especially if it's a mobile app, if you know who you're targeting, if it's like the new iPhone X or the Google Pixel 2, I love using UI stencils. There's something that's just so helpful about taking your user flow diagrams and then translating into something that already has a basic canvas. So it, it kind of stops you from, you know, putting too much on the on your mock-up or anything like that. So again, I can't recommend stencils enough. There's there's a billion of them out there. I can do is like type them into Google. You'll find them all over the place. But this part really just blew my mind. So she also talks about an iPhone app called Pop. And it basically allows you to take pictures of your paper sketches and link them together in basically a, a functional prototype. Now, of course, it's paper, but that's insane. I didn't even know that that was something you could do. I mean, literally, you take pictures, link it together with a couple buttons, and bam, you have a prototype done. So I'll link that in the description and the show notes on on SoundCloud. I'll link everything that I talk about here on both, uh, depending on what medium you get this through. But anyway, the so the Pop app, it, I took a look at it and actually did some sketches of my own and just put them together. I mean, this would save me so much time before I get to more refined mockups and like Envision or trying to build a basic HTML CSS prototype because it's it's usually once I start animating things that I, I really start to see, okay, I, I don't know if I'm making the right choices here. I'm not really sure if this flow works so well. I, so there's something about just being able to get it animated to really know what's going on. But the other thing that's awesome is this will allow you to test with people super early. And I'm not saying you have to go like run out and go find users. I mean, you could you could do this with your coworkers, your mom, whatever, and it would just give you a, a little bit of feedback so early in the game. Um, so that that's an awesome thing. Again, this is the Pop app. Never heard of it. It's I think it's only on iPhone. Hopefully, there's some kind of Android equivalent. But this this was my next part, and I, th- I thought that this was just a sick, eloquent quote for basically next step was, you know, um, choosing basic design patterns and color palettes, right? And the quote is, so it's like window shopping. So lots of patterns and color palettes to choose from, and you go about picking them and experimenting with them, which is awesome because that, that analogy is great is window shopping because I, I love doing like looking at these kind of websites just to get, you know, a basic, maybe some inspiration um, give me some ideas about different color schemes that I could use. It's it's just kind of one of the fun parts of designing, right? So you get to choose kind of maybe some of the navigation patterns or some of the UI components and then thinking about like how, how the different colors will impact and what tones they, they purvey to the user, all that kind of stuff. Um, so then this is my, f- this is by far my favorite part. I'm sure I've said that 10 times, but she created mockups, of course, and then animated them using something like Envision, right? So more hi-fi mockups. We're not we're away from the paper now, but instead of like just posting on Dribble or Behance, well, there's nothing wrong with those. I love putting stuff up there. Um, but she actually went out and tested this with people, just just general people trying to like like pitching them what the app was for and then having them walk through it and use it and see what was going on. And I just think that's awesome. I mean, it's taking, there's companies out there that can't seem to get their mind around that process. And the 16, the 16 year old is out there just crushing it. It's, it's absolutely awesome. I don't even know. So then it's based off of feedback, making going through iterations and then making final t- touch ups based off that feedback to actually begin coding the app. Um, so again, 16 year old showing us what's good with the design process out there. I, I just think it's great. All right. Okay. So let's get into the research topic for this week. So 
I'm going to plug this again. So I talked to a little bit earlier this week on five minutes of five UX questions about information architecture. There was a native React developer who would ask a question on the user experience subreddit of like, hey, I'm looking for the best practice and user experience for navigation patterns. And since for React Native, you're able to actually program for both iOS and Android, uh, I think at the same time, I may, I may be wrong on that, but I think it's at the same time, I basically gave him my, my two cents of how I would tackle it, right? So go look for the documentation on existing patterns that those two companies have. So in this case, Material Design has a huge section on navigation specifically for android and then you've got apple who's got their own like human interface guidelines um, but that's really only getting at the component aspect of it and pieces of um pieces that you can use to actually design what's going on in the ui but both of them really stressed the fact that you need to have a great information architecture first so you need to go through the steps of laying it out with your team of trying to understand, okay, what's the most visited pages? What will be the least? What do we have to include? What can we keep out of the navigation structure? How can we keep it as simple as possible? But also, too, then taking that and testing it with people. So I pulled an article that I found on UX Booth, and it and I'll again, I'll link all this stuff in the description, but I just thought it was a great overview of information architecture as a whole, and it's called The Complete Beginner's Guide to Information Architecture. Um, Seriously, check it out, read it, love it, live it. It's just one of those. But so one part that I wanted to tap into is to the cognitive psychology aspect of your information architecture design. Um, and really, I just want, and this applies back to kind of the user workflows that I was talking about earlier too, is when you're thinking about IA or you're designing it, one thing to really keep in mind is three kind of psychology concepts. So cognitive load, the mental model of your user that you already that already exists, and then also just basic things about decision making. So I'll go through each three of those and kind of kind of try and relate it back to information architecture. So just at a general glance, like information architecture really focuses on how information is laid out and then how people get to the information they need and making it as simple as possible based on your product, um, the use case that you design for each of your users, those kind of things. So cognitive load. So this is this is from information processing theory. So it's basically about the the amount of information that a person can process at any given time, which I can't remember who said this. I'm a I'm a bad psychology student, but it's it's somewhere around like seven plus or minus two pieces of information that you can keep in active memory at all times. So that's and and especially in the age of the internet where we offload so much information into either Google, like I know Google has the answer to this question, I'll go find it there, I won't remember it, or um, like hiding things in different navigation gate, navigation bars, that kind of stuff. So the thing to keep in mind is that people won't always remember where things are located, especially when we're talking about maybe getting into submenus or hidden menus or context menus. Uh, so that's just something to, to always keep in mind is when you're picking your main or primary navigation especially on a website because you have a little bit there's a little bit more forgiveness in mobile apps because you you have like an expandable menu but let's say we're talking about on your website 
picking how information is presented or what's going to be in that top level nav. Well, if you have sub menu items, you need to make sure that whatever your primary menu item name is, that's going to be indicative of what these sub menu items will be. Because people are honestly not going to, due to a physical limitation, or not physical, but cognitive limitations, won't remember where all that information is. So those words that you choose or phrases you choose need to cue people that, okay, this is what can be found here. Or this is the information you might see. So having overly complex menus, it just puts too much cognitive stress on people and they won't be able to find what they need quickly. Um, and this is the second part of this is understanding people's mental models, right? So this is something definitely you've seen a lot of cognitive psychology is talking about a mental model. So it's basically people's assumptions on how things work. Um, so a great, Example of this is the difference between how I think a car starts versus how my mom thinks a car starts, or the our mental models for how to start a car. So in this, I'll give you the example here. So my mom was calling me once where she was borrowing my car, and she's like, "Where's where do I put your key into the ignition in your car?" And of course, her mental model was that you take a metal piece of a key and you put it into the ignition of the car, crank it or turn it so that the car turns on. Well, my car had a keyless, like a quote-unquote keyless entry. So you just put the fob in your like in your pocket or whatever, and you press the start button by holding the breakdown. So my mental model for how my car started was different from my mom's. So this these these things are important to keep in mind when you're designing systems or web apps or anything. Because if you think about it, the reason that something like an ignition start button is still in a similar place that it's always been, it's just now a button instead of a crank, is because people are used to reaching down there or doing something in that area um, to turn a car on. Similar things happen in web applications. Like uh, a lot of people don't like the hamburger menu. I could really go either way, love it or hate it, don't really, don't really care. Um, but it's become kind of a, a synonymous symbol with it, it has more information in it or it's it's a menu that'll open up and have more more stuff in it I can get to. So when when you're designing something, if there's a well-known way to do it, stick to that. And I'm not saying don't be innovative. What I'm saying is understand what people's mental models of how to navigate to a home site are. So being able to from a logo go to the home page, like clicking a logo go to the home page or um being able to, you know, check out using PayPal, just know having an idea of what your user base's assumptions are going to be when they hit your web page, your app, or come into your store is going to give you a leg up in how you design and present them with information because they might expect they might expect to find, you know, different articles or different pieces of clothing in a specific place. That just that kind of stuff. So understanding how your how how people that you're trying to get to interact with your products think or are coming to those products what assumptions do they have do they understand how mobile phones work are they are they not so versed in technology are they super tech savvy people just understanding those little mental models and how that'll impact their cognitive load will really help you out so the last kind of point to talk about is decision-making. And actually from this article, I found it funny that it, this may not sound like psychology, but decision-making is definitely based in psychology. If, you, if you've if you ever read any, I think it's Daniel Kahneman and Tversky. I can't remember, like, 
Tversky's first name. But anyway, if you've ever read Thinking Fast and Slow, it's all about decision-making and framing and how you weight stuff. But anyway, so when we think of decision-making, really we're talking about the cognitive process that allows you to make a choice or select an option, which is simple enough, right? So information architects the, or UX designers or whoever is building your information architecture, they'll help you make decisions by providing information at the right time. So uh, an instance of this is let's let's talk about onboarding for a second. You download an app for the first time. There's nothing more frustrating to me and nothing that I'll skip through faster is if I open an app for the first time and it tries to give me like a world view tutorial of how the thing works because it's it's just it's too much information at once. I'm not going to remember it all. I've got like a a thing I want to do like I I, I don't know. I want to I don't know, download cat videos or whatever. And this app is trying to show me all the features about what it can do besides download cat videos. But in this particular case, all I want to do is the one thing. Now, the what can really help with decision-making of, let's say, I'm going to keep the app or I'm not, it is tailoring contextually when you give people tips and help. So when's a good time to help somebody figure out like, oh, here's some more advanced features. It's when they're actually trying to complete a task. So if when I download cat videos from download cat video app, I am trying to download one and there's share features or I can upload my own. If you're showing kind of what what extra things you can do in the same context, that's when things get really, really interesting. And that's when you start. Oh no, the video stopped. That's all right. We'll just put up the uh, we'll just put up the audio. No big deal. It stopped automatically. All right, whatever. Um, so where was I? All right. So yeah, if you're trying to download cat videos and there's extra features that are related to doing that, that's when you want to show it to them. Um, sorry, I know that got off on a little bit of a weird tangent just because I've got a camera filming that I was going to put stuff on YouTube with, but we won't do that today. All right. So I'm going to move to the last section, or no, i got another section after this. But anyway, this is the front-end development portion of the show, so I'm just going to talk about uh, some front-end front end dev stuff this week. Um, and one awesome article that I found from Smashing Magazine, and I have forgotten who actually wrote it, uh, and I feel really bad about that. But anyway, uh, again, Smashing Magazine is called Best Practice for Media Queries, and I'll link it in the description, all that kind of good stuff. Um, so now we have a whole bunch of technology that allows us to create responsive websites, what I was griping you about at the beginning of the show, um, with without the use of even media queries anymore. And for anybody who doesn't know what a media query is, it's basically a line in CSS that says, at this particular viewport, or when somebody's using, let's say, an iPhone, or if they're using an Android Pixel, or a tablet, or a laptop, at these particular sizes, show them a layout that's optimized for them to see. And for a long time, that's how you, that's just how you created a lot of responsive, responsive um, web apps and websites. Well, now there's technology called Flexbox and also CSS Grid, which allow you to do these things still, but you can control the layout a lot more. Um, with CSS Grid, which is a lot newer, you can actually control how the grid lays out. And I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on this at all. Um, happy to throw out some links for people that are. but And then Flexbox is, is similar. There, there's some vast differences between the two, but it, it allows you to basically write CSS that 
helps helps your website to keep the layout more flexible. Well, just like it says, you're putting everything inside of a div and you're controlling what happens as as the screen moves. And you can do this largely without media queries for both CSS and Flexbox. Um, so I've actually got three tips about just using media queries and the best practices that there are today, right? So one is that you don't want to target devices with media queries anymore. You actually want to add these breakpoints, these these points where the design changes based on what device is using it, based on your actual design. You don't want to do it just based off of like a generic target device. And I know that might sound a little confusing because I just talked about how media queries are basically used for that. It's like, okay, this is an iPhone 7. That's the viewport that I'm getting. Um, show, let me show them the website like this so that it's optimized for their phone. Well, it's it's not exactly a one-to-one mapping, right? So when you design a, a full website, you, you're better off trying to see at what breakpoints or at what general sizes do I really need to change my design? Do I need to make it more responsive? Um, because th- there's just so many devices nowadays that it's hard to fill up just fill up your entire you know CSS sheet with just media queries of eat for each device and then you're having to constantly update it. It's better to create all of this based off of breakpoints. And I mean, you can use things like Chrome DevTools or Firefox DevTools or whatever set of DevTools you like to use to help you set these so you can view what your website would look like in specific sizes and really use that to tell you like, uh, things are starting to get wonky here or this this line of text is really, really long. I need to break it down. Or um, could I use screen real estate better in my laptop view versus what I'm doing for the iPhone view or mobile phone view. Um, so that's tip number one. Don't just target your your smart devices. Actually use your design to help you figure out some breakpoints. Uh, all right, let's move to the next point. This was really interesting because I think about this all the time since I started taking some of my front-end classes. And it's using EMs. Excuse me. Using EMs or... EM units it's for when you're adding breakpoints instead of just using pixels because it, it gives your whole site a much more consistent unit of measure because it bases, bases it off of a line height that you define in your um, your HTML or in your CSS document. So it's, then it, everything's resizing in proportion to that. So you're not really having to worry about like changing specific pixel sizes or any of that because EMs are based off of a percentage, they change in a relative fashion. So in the long run, it's going to benefit your design. It's going to benefit people using your website and it's going to benefit your code too. That's, that's another thing. If you're, if you're a developer, you work with a lot of developers, they will appreciate that. Um, so this last point part, I think is really, really important. And I've, I've written some, some articles and done some research about, um, kind of accessibility of web web products and web design. And it's important to remember that some users access the web differently. And I know that, that might sound a little silly to most people, but it's true. So there's a, there's a couple of, there's a feature in Grid and, and not so much in Flexbox, but to some degree that allows you to really rearrange the entire layout depending on what breakpoints you set or media queries you're using. And this is absolutely excellent and so much fun. But users who are actually navigating on their desktop and their keyboard um, or their phone with their finger, this is really no problem, right? 
However, a lot of people actually have low vision or they have poor vision, and you, they'll end up using screen readers um, on your websites. And so why would this be a problem if the screen's just reading them the content? Well, if you're, if you're, let's say your CSS grid is totally changing the layout of something um, when they're re- if they're resizing their window, not all people with uh, that use screen readers have total no vi- have total loss of vision. They just have lower amounts of it, right? Um, so they can actually see what's on the screen. But the problem is, is being able to see what's on the screen and having the screen reader tell you what's on there, and if it's if there's not a one to one mapping. Uh, because of how the grid layout has changed, it can just create a lot of confusion, and you don't want any of your users being confused, uh, no matter no matter who they are. So, just something to keep in mind. Um, always know who your user base, or think about how alternate <laughs> think about alternative ways people can access your content. Um, so, again, for more about just using media queries in general or responsive design. Uh, there's an article on Smashing Magazine called Using Media Queries for Responsive Design in 2018. And again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't use them. I'm just saying there's there's there are optimal times to use them, and that's kind of the, the general thesis of the article. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. All right, so I'm going to wrap up today's show with the experience of the week. So let's close today out on a fun note. All right. So my experience of the week actually goes out to Apple's Siri, vir- Siri, Siri the virtual assistant. So anybody that knows me knows I have a pretty interesting and somewhat frustrating relationship with my virtual assistant, Siri. And I've gotten some seriously much more smart-ass remarks since the last update. And I love it. I think it's hilarious. Like, you can ask my girlfriend, my friends, I constantly am arguing with Siri. She gives me something I don't want. I'll be snarky with her. And I'm telling you, and if you you don't agree with this or you actually have this experience where Siri is snarky with you, please tweet me at DontPanicUX and tell me about it or send me screenshots because I think it's hilarious and I love it so much. But these are two gems that I got this week. So I was doing laundry earlier today and... I always use Siri to set timers. Uh, and I think she gets annoyed with it because after I asked her to set a timer for 25 minutes, her reply was, okay, I set it. Just to, just remember, a watched iPhone never boils. That was a brand new one I had never heard of. Now, the, uh, the next one's kind of an instance in which I was goofing off, trying to get the name of a song, and there was a bunch of people talking in the background. Um, but yeah, I was trying to get the name of this song or have Siri listen to it and give me the name. And instead, what I got as a reply instead of a name of a song was that I do not know your mother. I actually don't really even know you. And I died laughing so hard. The combination of words was, of course, jumbled. So it wasn't completely just on her own volition that she didn't tell me, oh, I don't want to tell you what the name of the song is. I'm going to tell you that I don't know your mother and I don't know you. Uh, so so that was my my lovely experience of the week. I just died laughing every time I used Apple Siri. So remember, when you're designing products, sometimes it's just about the fun factor. You don't always have to, you know, have the prettiest thing or the most elegant, um, efficient design, right? So that's going to be it for me. You guys can always find me at Don't Panic UX on Twitter and on YouTube. Uh, if you get a chance, please check out the Don't Panic, U- Don't Panic UX YouTube channel for the five minutes of five UX questions and other great stuff that I'll be putting up there. So as always, I'll leave the links in the show description, both on, I guess only on SoundCloud for this week since my camera died on me for YouTube. But I'll leave all the links to anything I talked about on the show up there. 
So again, happy Friday. Go make something epic this weekend. And I'm Blake Arnstorf, and this has been a UX Rant.